Sunday mornings at 11 mm-hmm. o'clock is the most racially divided time in America. Welcome to Among Neighbors, a podcast about race, power, and privilege. I'm Andy Conti, director of the Center for Media Innovation, Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. And I'm Barbara Johnson. I'm working at Carlo University in the education department. Barbara, we're talking today about one of the biggest racial divides in America, a conversation we've been wanting to have for a long time, actually, so I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Absolutely, and uh, I'm sure it's like that in many cities across America, but definitely Pittsburgh shows up as a lot of racial division on Sunday mornings at church. Yeah, I was looking into it because we've been talking about this almost from the moment we started the podcast. This was one of the things we wanted to focus in on. And I looked at the research. The churches across the United States have actually gotten a little bit more integrated over the past couple of decades, but it's still only about 16% up from 6% 20 years ago. And the churches that were integrated have not gotten any more integrated. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've still got a long way to go. Most people get up and, you know, it's you either go to a, a white congregation or a black congregation on Sunday morning. When I first came to Pittsburgh, I do remember there was a number of churches that were working intentionally to integrate churches. And, you know, they would connect with four or five different churches and they would kind of church hop. So this Sunday we're going to all go to blah, blah, blah church. But it is very, very segregated. I'm Catholic. And there's one black Catholic church in Pittsburgh, and all the other churches are predominantly white, and that's really predominant. <laughs> is that St. Benedict de Moor? Yes, St. Yeah. Benedict de Moor in the Hill District is. And St. Benedict de Moor is, is diverse. So there are many black Catholics there, and there are also white Catholics who go there. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm United Methodist, and we used to go to Calvary United Methodist on the north side, and it was not pretty much an organically integrated church, a good mix of people there. And then we switched to our, basically our home church in Mount Lebanon. And it was like, no surprise, all white, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, basically those, the churches reflected the communities they served. Yeah. I was just going to say that if you know the the communities in Pittsburgh, once you get used to them, you can pretty much say who's in that church. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very different experiences. And we'll, you know, maybe even talk about that today within the denominations that, you know, the experiences are the same, but they're also different. Absolutely. So, so let's bring in our guest. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Asa Lee, welcome to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dr. Lee uh, just took over as director of the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, coming here from Washington, D.C., where he was uh, running the Wesley Theological Seminary and serving as a Baptist minister there, right? I had three hats at Wesley. It was the Just campus, three. Yeah. <laughs> Campus administrator, dean of students, and I also directed the African American Church Studies program there. Oh, nice. So first, welcome to Pittsburgh. Has Pittsburgh been a a welcoming place for you? It has. I have received open arms and welcome from all quadrants of the city. The ecclesial welcome, the even business folks, and even my children at St. Bede's have been welcomed and embraced. So it's been an exciting, um, warm welcome. That's good. Very nice. Very nice. Um, St. Bede's has not been known as a very diverse school, um, so I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. My four daughters contribute significantly to the diversity (laughs) of of St. Bede's. (laughs) Okay. Yes. So what do you make of our topic today? Is this, are we making too much of this or is this still a big racial divide in America? Um, This is not a topic that can ever be Uh, overstated. Mm -hmm. This is a topic that has been assumed for a very long time in American history and has been endemic to the culture. Dr. King in the 60s did an interview with Mike Wallace Wallace, Mm -hmm. in which he he said, and this is I think 64, 65, you know, that's where that famous quote came from, right? That Sunday mornings at Mm -hmm. 11 o'clock is the most racially divided time in America. America, And 
you know, we're talking about, you know, almost 60 years later almost, we still have the same problem. There's been, you've talked, the statistic of maybe 16%, but the reality is the average church-going American attends a church in which they look like the rest of the congregation. Mm. But there are lots of reasons for that. Okay. That I hope we'll get into some of that yeah, absolutely. Uh, today. But there are lots of reasons why that's going there. And I think we need to understand that part of the equation. And this is a big if, if you think that statistic needs to change. Right. Mm. If. The big if, yeah. Because yep. I'm sure a lot of people are comfortable with it the way it is. Yeah. Right. So what are the reasons? What do you, let's get into that. Yeah, so... Um, it starts, I'm going to wax historical for a little bit, Great. right? Uh, I taught a course at Wesley entitled Race, Religion, and Resistance okay. in America. And it was a course that was, you know, we call it now pejoratively, you know, critical race theory, which I, don't re- I still don't know what that means exactly. Right. But, but this was a course in American religious history. And it actually starts at, in the colonial period mm-hmm. in America, in which the predominant Anglican in Protestant worshiping and Catholic worshiping communities were almost exclusively, you know, byproducts of the old world, mm-hmm. right? And uh, African-Americans who were by and large enslaved during the colonial period were either participating by force or uh, if they were freely going, they were not evangelized. They were not sort of considered to be a part of the gospel message. The only exception were Catholic communities, but Catholics themselves had to come to that over a few centuries, mm-hmm. right? Beginning in the 1600s, there was this strong view that black bodies were cursed, right? They were the descendants of the curse mm-hmm. of Ham, and so therefore the Catholic Church sanctioned slavery of those persons. Wow. And so it, it isn't until you get working of human dignity and that Catholics at least acknowledge in a very um, pejorative and patronizing way that these to use the language of the day, infantile minds Mm -hmm. and infantile bodies needed the enlightenment of the gospel. You know, there was a charge, right? So very patronizing. Other communities, Baptists, Methodists, were very split about the role of race and religion. And so you had two camps. You had those who were patronizing, a la Catholics and others. And then you had those that just said they're just beasts of burden. In so as much not, as they're not part of the church, then they're just they're not part of humanity, okay, okay, right? So they're right. beasts of burden. Any more that you would baptize a horse, why would you baptize? Uh, I mean, that, it was wow. that kind of thinking going wow. on, right? But it didn't mean that African enslaved persons weren't religious, right? So they brought their religious identity with them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they also heard the gospel sitting on the outside of southern mm. churches. Mm-hmm. They also heard, in the case of northern communities, they heard and were part of some ecclesial communities, mm-hmm. the most famous being the Methodist Episcopal churches in the north in Philadelphia, which were allowing African Americans to join their church and be mm-hmm. a part of the worshiping community, okay. but they weren't allowed to take communion. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the birth of one of America's oldest uh, African Methodist uh, denominations comes out of a protest against communion. Mm. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, which uh, really starts in the late 1700s but is founded formally in the early 19th century by Richard Allen, is founded over a question of whether or not black folks can take communion with everybody else. Wow. Yeah. Right? So you have a deep divide that starts very early on in the American experiment and grows. Simply put, the gospel that is preached on Sunday mornings by many white preachers is a gospel that is enslaving. Mm. It's always skewed towards a theological view that says you 
need to obey your masters, right? These famous scriptures of Paul are warped and designed to tell you that this is your lot in life. But the incredible mystery of the gospel is that even though enslaved persons heard that, on Sunday nights, they would have their own preacher come Mm. in the quiet hush harbors and in cabins. And there they they use techniques like speaking into a pot Mm. that would hush their voice Uh or the slave preacher would dance and sing in the tradition of the African religious traditions, Mm -hmm. but preach the gospel. Mm. Often these folks couldn't read. Okay. Right. Right? You know, it was illegal for any of them to learn how to read, but they understood the story of the Exodus. They understood that somehow God in the Exodus story did not side with Pharaoh. Right. But sided with the slave and they read themselves into the Exodus narrative. So right there, they get two streams of thinking in American religious identity, right? So many of the African-American religious communities that develop that we have and see regularly today, black Baptists, black African Methodist Episcopal, Christian Methodist Episcopal, a lot of these denominations, which, you know, many folks don't know if you're not African-American and religious, they are founded as a part of the resistance movement against slavery. So I would say that one of the big reasons why we have this divide is because at the heart of the gospel in the African-American community is a strong sense of affirmation of human dignity. Mm-hmm. So over and over again, uh, six days a week, you're working as a beast of burden and told that you're nothing. Right. But on Sunday nights, mm-hmm. the gospel would be preached in, in hush harbors and in brush in swamps and other places as an act of resistance wow. that affirmed mm-hmm. that you were somebody in spite of, mm-hmm. right? So you, we get our uh, so-called Negro spirituals from, yeah. this, from this experience. You get most of the, the elements that we take for granted in African-American culture, like rhyming, Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. dance, mm-hmm. the importance of storytelling through song. The blues themselves are born in this, mm. wow. this context. Jazz yeah. is a product of I mean, all of this is a part of, but it's intertwined with this deep sense of resistance to which um, white theological views are very late to come to, mm-hmm. right? An idea of theological <laughs> resistance and theological liberation is not born earnestly in white theological circles mm until really the post-World War II with people like Karl Barth and others who are part of the confessing movement rejecting Nazism, Mm. Mm. right? So it's it's the same kind of resistance motif, but you don't have it until very late. You're talking about late 1700s, early 1800s. You have African-Americans who are not literate, who are able to articulate a working theology. I'll tell you a quick story of this complex sort of theological conundrum. Henry Bibb, is a mm-hmm. slave, an yeah. enslaved person in, you know, early 19th century. Uh, you, you familiar with Artist, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so he was an enslaved person who escaped, according to him, he, he wrote his own biography. But he talked about, you know, how the preacher, uh, he never believed in the Christian religion okay. because what he was introduced to was the Sunday morning preacher, mm-hmm. right, the, the 10 o'clock, 11 a.m. white clapboard church preacher. But on Sunday nights... There was something about the black preacher that helped him discover that he had a right to run away, mm. that he always had a right to run away. So he talks, he tells one story about how he prayed and God told him to run. So he ran mm-hmm. and, you know, he'd been out for two or three days and he was hungry 
and he prayed, Lord, send something, and there was a chicken on a fence. And he talks about in his narrative how he goes through the ethic, right? God said, thou shalt not steal. Oh. This is somebody else's chicken. Mm-hmm. I cannot take this chicken and eat it. And then he has the epiphany. And this is kind of what the gospel preached in those hush harbors does for the African-American. He has the epiphany that how can one steal when one has been stolen? He said, so that night I had chicken. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. To get back to the central question, that's a big reason why there's this divide. Because there are two fundamentally different religious experiences going on, right? You have a church that is affirming the oppressive systems that are holding people back, and then you have a church that uh, is affirming resistance. Every single slave revolt in this country Mm -hmm. happened as a result of a religious identity. Mm. Nat Turner Mm -hmm. and Denmark Vesey, who Denmark Vesey is an ordained minister Mm. in, in one of those African Methodist traditions, Nat Turner has a religious experience. The narrative is that he was crazy. No, he's reading the book of Daniel. Right. And God says to him, you are my judgment. Right. And so every single rebellion happens as a result of religious, not conformity to the status quo, but a reaction to what has been happening. And so African-American churches grow into places of deep affirmation of people. Mm -hmm. Right. Sanctuary means something Mm. in the African-American experience. It's the place I can come and find refuge, the place I can be affirmed, Mm -hmm. the place where my struggle can be celebrated. That is true in the 20th century when African-Americans are victims of Jim Crow and segregation laws and you would have limited jobs. Mm -hmm. Right. You'd have I often use the example of the janitor at the local office building would nobody would remember his name. Mm -hmm. Right. Nobody would call him by his name. Right. They just call him Sam or Jack or whatever. Right. But in the church house, he was chair of the deacon board. Right. He was a trustee. He was brother Sam. Uh-huh. He was Mr. Jack. Yeah. Right. And same thing with many of African-American women who were relegated to domestic life, particularly in the South. Right. They were often disrespected, mistreated. Mm-hmm. But in the church. They were the church secretary. Mm-hmm. They're the Sunday school superintendent. They had identity. Yeah. And that is something that really creates a divide for us now as we wrestle with how would you integrate mm-hmm. when you have a community that finds its identity and cultural expression in these places. So that's one big one. And to your original question of if, right, do we even want to integrate these spaces? Should we? Or are by integrating them, are we somehow losing something? Losing something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the open question that we have to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. I think another key reason why we have this divide, as was mentioned uh, earlier, is churches are products of their communities. Right. Right. So if you have a segregated right. community, okay. you have a segregated church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, most of our Protestant churches in particular are founded at points in the late 19th, early 20th century, in which many of our urban centers look very different, Mm -hmm. right? And many African-American communities were relegated to very small segments of towns of our cities, right? Here in Pittsburgh, it it was a hill district, right? And so then if, if that community is only relegated to that spot in the city, Mm -hmm. then there is no other place for them to go. Right. And so their churches flourish in those, but in those communities. Mm -hmm. And, we have to remind people daily that, you know, Jim Crow is within living memory. Slavery is but 
two, in some cases, two or three generations removed. In, and guess where the living memory of that is most acute? In our churches. Mm-hmm. Where do you find, you know, some of our older folks are in their 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and can remember very easily a time when Jim Crow was the law of the land. I'm coming from, to Pittsburgh sure. from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the story of a place called Freedman's Village which was a community uh, just off from the Custis Plantation, which is the famous, the building on Arlington National Cemetery that you see, the, the mm-hmm. house. That's the Custis Plantation, okay. which was really Robert E. Lee's in-laws. Mm. Okay. It was his wife's family. So we call it Robert E. Lee's house, but it actually is the Custis Family Plantation. Okay. The slaves from the Custis Family Plantation, the enslaved persons after the Civil War, settled at the bottom of the hill on the Potomac River mm-hmm. and formed a community. By the 1890s, it was a community of almost 5,000 folks. In the 1930s, the federal government seized that land to build the Pentagon Ah. by a federal eminent domain and did not pay, did not remunerate those persons. Mm -hmm. The church I served in Arlington, Virginia, was born in Freedman's Village. There was a woman in our church who at the time was 94 years old, and she joined the church when she was 12. Wow. And she remembered... Mm -hmm. She drew a picture of Freedman's Village. She drew sort of the, the lay of the land. She told the story of how they moved, right? right? Living memory. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not ancient history. It is not ancient history, no, right? No. right? Yeah. So if we don't talk about right. where we are and the history there, then you don't get the real root of why our communities are segregated the way they are. Uh, I'll tell you another story in a minute between two churches, two Methodist churches who are less than a mile from each other mm-hmm. and how they ran smack up against this kind of intense history and how it kept them from coming together. Churches are part of their communities Mm -hmm. and the products of their communities. And so if we had segregation for so long, Mm -hmm. this is why our churches are lagging behind in this way. You were going to tell us about these two churches. Yes. So I'm not going to call their names, but they're two Methodist churches in suburban Washington. They are less than a mile from each other. And both of them technically in the South. So we're, you know, Mm -hmm. Virginia is I know in Pittsburgh, Virginia is certainly the South, but for most Georgians and Texans, Virginia is the North. Right, right. <laughs> and so both churches were founded in the 1840s, 1850s. The black church was founded by enslaved persons who were freed and built a community themselves, really on the same spot they've been for almost 200 years. The white church a mile away, founded by prominent wealthy Virginians, And the church, though, had a progressive position Mm -hmm. on slavery. Mm -hmm. And so they sided with the North. And in fact, in their history is, in fact, they were Union Hospital Mm -hmm. uh, in Virginia. Right. Uh, So and their Union soldiers buried in their cemetery. Wonderful story, right? Mm -hmm. One is very white. The one is all black. Even now in the 21st century. Right. So what happened? Well, there's a little thing called Jim Crow. And in Arlington, Jim Crow was very real, and Arlington schools, I I tell people this, despite its progressive legacy and liberal environment, George Lincoln Rockwell's and the American Nazi Party's headquarters in the 60s was in Arlington, Virginia. I don't know how public this is going to be, but, you know, I'm sure the Chamber of Commerce in Arlington is going to be upset about that. But (laughs) the white folks at, at the one church were very sort of keen on, we need to build relationships. Mm-hmm. And why is this black church up here? We need to be in relationship with them. Come on, let's let's do this. And it wasn't until some of the folks at the black church told the story 
that the person that was the architect of much of the Jim Crow policies in the county was a prominent member of that church. Mm. Of the white church. Of the white church. Wow. And was the face Mm -hmm. of that. And there were people in the black church, again, because of age, who remember vividly names, dates, times, places, Mm -hmm. and said, there's no way in my life that I'm ever going to set foot in that church. Wow. Now, that's how raw Mm -hmm. this is. Now, many at that white church knew nothing about this. Right. Right. It was just not a part of their history. You know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying this was the case, but the question more existentially is, what does it mean to invite persons of color who are part of that community into a place where perhaps the fellowship hall is named after someone that is vilified in your community or was the architect of racial policies? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to see that person's visage? In the community, right? If you don't tell the whole picture, but this is a story that can be repeated over and over and over again in any American town, right? Or you have a black church and a white church, right? And if you're in the South, or particularly in in the Mid-Atlantic, you will find uh, two Methodist churches in very close proximity to each other because Mm -hmm. during the split between the North and the South over the issue of slavery, churches were founded as breakaways mm-hmm. for the communities that wanted to be progressive, right? This is true of Presbyterian churches, yeah. true of Lutheran churches, true of his, even the Episcopal community. It, over and over and over again, you have this, this happening, fracturing over the issue of race. And instead of telling the whole story, we just go as, in good Protestant fashion and start a new church. So I will say the good news is those churches are talking. Okay. Right? So, but... They started with let's merge to we can't merge. Right. We must kind of work through what does it mean to have two different ministries together. So can you go back a little bit to to the earlier part of the conversation where we talked about what potentially is lost when we do something like merging churches and, and pulling together? Right. I've done a lot of research around the uh, the Negro leagues. And mm-hmm. The idea that mm-hmm. you know that's that was often the complaint I heard from. Uh, re- sports reporters who had covered the Negro leagues was yes integration was great of baseball. But it also meant the dissolution of the Negro Leagues, ultimately, that, that you lost that heritage and, and mm-hmm. all the uh, the positives that came from that. Right. So the way that integration generally happens is flawed when it comes to these kinds of – and I think the Negro Leagues is a great example. Uh, it's not true integration. It's actually assimilation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's generally expected that one organization or institution sits over here and then that other group comes into that, Mm -hmm. which means they have to adopt the cultural practices. It's not like we integrated the the Negro League teams. They all had to go away. That's right. So the players could. Right. You had to dissolve one. Right. Right. And it was assumed. Yeah. Right. Right. That's what that's what it means. And I think that is, in fact, the problem. It's assimilation Mm -hmm. instead of in true. Right. Interrelationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so the in most white denominations, what you find is the last four weeks have been intensely focused on on Sundays, the black history moment mm-hmm. or the singing of the Negro spirituals in worship. These are ways in which these white churches at best right. are, are integrated. So sometimes in some, some cases there's no acknowledgement at all, especially if, you know, Lent comes early. Mm, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've got Lent, so we'll do one Sunday, but other than that, you know, yeah. it's nothing. Right, So, but it's assimilation, mm-hmm. to be clear. Even in what are so-called integrated churches that kind of start with sort of a mixed, mm-hmm. you know, multi-ethnic ministry, it's a template of some kind. There are very few churches nationally 
that have black pastors with an integrated congregation, mm-hmm. right? T.D. Jakes might be a prominent example of one. By and large, there are very few examples of multi-ethnic, multi-racial mm-hmm. ministry with an African-American head. Mm. Okay. There are lots of examples of multi-racial, multi-ethnic ministries with white Mm-hmm. clergy leaders, mm. right? But even in those spaces, you're walking into a space where it is understood that theologically and culturally, there's a certain frame at work. Mm-hmm. And that is dangerous because you lose, you're asking certain members of the congregation to lose a part of themselves mm-hmm. or to deny a part of mm-hmm. their identity, right? So in many cases, we don't talk about the distinctions of race in a church like that, right? Yeah. And we then... We act like it's not a thing. It's not a thing, okay. right? And yeah. we just focus on the Bible, right? Right. It's the Bible. It's like, yeah, but there's racial ethnicity all throughout the biblical, right. biblical story. But we don't talk about that, right? Right. And so I would say that many of our examples of multiracial, multiethnic ministry themselves are not genuinely integrative moments. Yeah. They are really sort of wholesale co-opting of one community's uh, identity in another. So you lose a distinctiveness of the beauty of of the value of difference. Mm -hmm. You lose a sense of the richness of the religious witness of the diversity. There are are many examples in the the Old and New Testament where diversity is celebrated, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, In Acts, where they speak all, uh, everyone of all nations is gathered, Mm -hmm. but they speak in tongues and everybody understands what's going on. Uh, In the Old Testament, where uh, God destroys the Tower of Babel because they all are speaking the same language, we miss the fact that just before he... God destroys the Tower of Babel. The commission is to be fruitful and multiply all the earth and diversify, Mm. right? And then we do the exact opposite and build a tower where we speak the same language and do the same thing, and God has to come and destroy it. And then reiterates the commission afterwards and says, I told you, go out (laughs) in the earth. and Right? So there are examples where there's a celebration of difference, right? And you can have unity over difference, but sameness does not equate to unity. And I think that's been the, the overarching principle in many American churches mm-hmm. is that we wanted conformity, similarity, and orthodoxy means we're all thinking and talking the same way. To bring this all full circle now, let's get back to you and your new role at mm-hmm. the theological seminary. So you're coming in as a black man running the seminary. Mm-hmm. How are you bringing all this, what we've been talking about, to your experience running the seminary then? So uh, the seminary is, uh, I like to say, uh, a microcosm of of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It is, the seminary is almost 230 years old, together with its antecedent institutions, all of which have been a part of the Western PA culture. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, in its current iteration, was founded in the late 50s, but as a result of the merger of all of these antecedent institutions that go back to 1790s. And so part of this is we've been entered in at a wonderful time. I did not initiate some of the initiatives that are happening uh, around racial justice and racial identity. So if you go to the seminary's website, we have a theological statement of racial justice Mm -hmm. uh, there that talks about both the ways in which not just the seminary, but the church broadly has participated in systems of oppression, Mm -hmm. and the confession, which is a fundamental Christian uh, practice, of what we've done wrong and then how we might correct. And I am happy to enter into the seminary that has already started that work. Mm -hmm. The racial justice statement was already sort of well-formed. We have worked hard to create systems and pipelines for having more substantive conversations. 
with all constituencies about ways to combat race and racism, both in their communities, but also theologically, right? And I think that's the piece that's missing in many of our conversations. Mm -hmm. I often tell folks that these wonderful racial DEI conversations are really great, but they're devoid of the theological. Yeah. And I'm seminary president, so I'm happy to be biased and say, if you're not doing the theological, then you're really not doing the, the hard work. Yeah. Because fundamental to racism is a theology that denies human dignity. Mm-hmm. And unless you deal with that, mm-hmm. then you're doomed to repeat the systems. You know, we, we can see eye to eye legally, right? Because I have to. But it may be that I don't think you're worthy because God doesn't love you like God loves me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that simple, wow. <laughs> right? And so the seminary is wanting to take a position that actually says, no, let's equip students and others mm-hmm. to actually deal in part with the theology of this. And we're doing it in our own ways. We have a lot of work to go, but the racial justice statement is a great aspirational uh, example of the ways in which we are willing to help communities and future leaders to address this issue in one small way. Yeah. Nice. Barbara, this feels like another one of those conversations we could just keep going. I know, I know, right? It, it's yeah. really exciting and makes me want to do some more theological, historical research on my own because, yeah, that stuff fascinates me and just in terms of thinking of my own personal self but also looking at the intersections that happen in cities, especially mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, and, you know, understanding the historical why mm-hmm. that repeats <laughs> over and over again over and over again yeah, yeah. Well, dr lee thanks so much for being you know here with us at the the center for media innovation and spending your time but uh, for coming to pittsburgh and and being part of our community here in pittsburgh as well i'm, I'm glad you have found it to be a welcoming place so far and i, I hope it continues to be so well i'm glad to be here uh, i am excited about all the ways in which the seminary can be positioned to be a leader for all of these kind of conversations yeah, in pittsburgh yeah. so i'm excited well, good. Thanks for having me. Well, and thanks to our listeners for listening to Among Neighbors, a podcast on race, power, and privilege. This podcast comes to you from the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University and is produced this week by Wayne Gaines. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.